This is Our American Stories, and for the hour, we're going to celebrate the life of Arnold Palmer. He wasn't precious, and he wasn't privileged. One reporter called him Marlon Brando with a golf club. He created Arnie's Army, well, because he had a love for people, and you're going to hear about it from the people, from every walk of life, movie stars, fellow golfers, ordinary Americans. You'll even hear Bob Green's remarkable Wall Street Journal column when, as a kid reporter, he actually stumbles out onto the course during an actual match to interview Arnold Palmer. And you won't believe what Palmer does because he could have done a lot of things. And it's a classic Palmer story. Was he the best ever? Who cares? Let others argue about that. He was a great one. Was he the most important? You're going to find out that he was. Because it ended up he democratized a sport that had been only for the elites. But he didn't just democratize it. He commercialized it. He was the first to win $1 million on the professional tour. He was the first to fly his own plane to a tournament. 68 PGA wins, 7 majors, 4 masters. 4. That's crazy. Born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, to a working class family in a steel town. But let's take a listen first before we dig into this biography to some of the folks who remembered Arnold Palmer. Let's go to Latrobe, Pennsylvania first, his home, where an airport's named after him, because again, he flew his own plane and he loved aviation. Here's a report from the small town TV station. You can see that a growing memorial is starting to take form here outside of the Arnold Palmer Regional Airport, and even the flags are at half-staff today. People I talk to in this community tell me that this loss is truly heartbreaking. Stu Hartman stopped by the Arnold Palmer Regional Airport with flowers in hand, paying respect to an icon. He touched a lot of people in so many ways, and a true gentleman. I had the opportunity to meet him once, and he was just the most down-to-earth guy you want to meet. We're going to miss him terribly. Arnold Palmer's legacy just wasn't on the golf course, but also Latrobe and surrounding community. The airport, named in his honor, where he served on the Westmoreland County Airport Authority. Great loss all over, but especially around here, uh, he was uh, he was a great guy, and he you know he did a lot for for everything, including the airport. Palmer was also the president and principal owner of the Latrobe Country Club. Just down the road in Youngstown, signs of gratitude and thanks and fly with angels, Arnie. A man whose kind hardness, spirit and generosity is just as big as his talents on the links. He sat with kings and queens and presidents and and he was just as happy sitting with a bunch of guys from the mill or the for the coal mines and he wasn't pretentious. He was a he was what, you know, everybody calls a good egg. We were just uh, so blessed to have had him uh, amongst us, and we're going to miss him. He sat with kings, and he did. You'll learn that General and President Dwight D. Eisenhower actually showed up at his doorstep to hang with him for a weekend and play some golf. But yet he was just as comfortable with just ordinary working-class folks because he saw himself as ordinary. There's just no doubt. Part of the big three in the 1960s of golf, Gary Player, Arnold Palmer, and Jack Nicklaus. But there was no rivalry in sports quite like Nicklaus and Palmer. Let's take a listen to Jack Nicklaus remembering his friend. We'd be playing together. 
and one of us would shoot 73 and the other one would shoot 74. We walk off and he says, well, I got you today. Well, while the rest of the field just passed us. We didn't really care whether the rest of the field passes out. We wanted to beat each other. And uh, we've been that way all our lives, but yet then we'd finish the round. We'd shake hands and go have dinner together. Well, I think it's the legacy of the game of golf is he's the guy that popularized the game. He's the guy that moved forward. Uh, he handled, he led his life the right way. He was, uh, uh, he was, uh, he was a strickler, uh, a stickler for uh, dress codes and, and uh, you know, uh, clean faces and uh, short hair and, you know, he was pretty much the old school. He, he loved the traditions of the game. He loved the traditions of, of how you're supposed to handle yourself and, and how you're supposed to represent uh, yourself and the game. I think the, the best memories are memories of uh, uh, the two of us and just being friends, having each other's back, doing, supporting each other in a variety of different ways. I spoke to him about two weeks ago on his birthday. I, I used to always call him on his birthday and uh, that was September 10th and uh, he, um, uh, he sounded great. And I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing good. He said, I'm coming back. He said, I'm starting to hit some golf balls again. And, uh, and I don't know whether he was or not, but that's what he said. Well, we talked a little bit and I thought he was doing great. I was really, uh, he was a lot better than he was uh, uh, at Augusta this year. At Augusta this year, he didn't look very good. And we were, were worried about him. And, uh, then, and then he, and he starts sounding better. You hate to lose a friend, and you hate to lose any kind of a good friend. And, but I, don't, I, I sort of look back and remember the good times we had. Uh, we're both getting pretty old, and uh, uh, you know I think that we had a lot of good times, a lot of good things that we did together, uh, a, lot of, a lot of great uh, uh, competitions, and a lot of great times together with our wives. And you know that's, that's the things you remember. And that is the thing you remember. Here's Freddie Couples, who called into a sports station, and Freddie's a, a remarkable golf talent, and he actually gets overwhelmed by the prospect of thinking about talking about his close friend's passing. Uh, you remember your first encounter with Arnold? Uh, yeah, and I, I just want to start by, you know, I think you guys are doing a phenomenal job. Um, I can't do anything, Freddie Couple says. Very powerful. When we come back, you're going to hear from so many more people on the life of Arnold Palmer. And you can only hope when you pass that people are crying like that about you, folks. Take a listen to The Secret. You're going to hear it from Arnold Palmer, from beyond, from all of his friends. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with our celebration of the life of Arnold Palmer and what a life it was. You just heard a grown man openly and just outwardly crying on air, could not get it together. And this is how he impacted, by the way, his peers. So here are these people he's competing with every day, day in, day out, and he forged deep relationships with the people who once they went on the course, he wanted to win. But the second he got off, he wanted to help their friend, his friends. And they were all friends, these guys, and you can hear it. Here's Lee Trevino. My goodness, we could do an hour on him. His life is so compelling. Here's Lee Trevino, what it was like playing with Arnold Palmer. Arnie couldn't move me. I was always, I love Arnold so bad. I always played bad with Arnie because I was making sure, you okay? You need a Coke? A hot dog? I want to take care of Arnie. You know, Arnie like a father figure to us. And he is. And, and I love this guy. And we just wonder, you know, I mean, you okay? You okay? I, I remember playing in the last competitive round that he played in Houston. I birdied one, I birdied two, we go to tee off at three, and he looked at me and he says, what the hell are you doing? And I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? He said, don't embarrass me like this. I said, oh, okay. So, now we go to the next hole, the part three, and I hit one up there about eight feet, and Arnie, Arnie hits it, you know, and Arnie's going, you know, I, and he's going like this, and the ball gets up on the bank and comes back in the water, and he said, how close is that? And I said, Arnie, I said, I said, uh, Augusta Pines were playing in Houston then. And I said, Arnie, I said, the pin's over there. He said, what? I said, that's a tree you're shooting at over there. I said, I said, the pin's over there. And that's when he quit. He quit right there, right there. He said to me, he said, I'm not playing anymore. I said, what do you mean not playing anymore? He said, that's it. I'm not, that's my last competitive shot. And I said, well, what are you going to do? I'm going to get a card for you. I'll have you take him back to the, to the clubhouse. Oh, no, no, no. He said, I'm not going back to the clubhouse. He said, I'm going to finish my round. He says, but I don't want to keep score. So he told the guy holding the thing up, he said, put, put five under on there and leave it. I said, no. Self-deprecating. I mean, here's the, the, the greatest, perhaps, golfer of all time, and he's just cutting it up even as he's losing his sight and his his hand-eye and depth coordination and knowing that it's time to stop. He's still making it fun. I don't know how you do that, but again, this is what made Arnold Palmer Arnold Palmer. Lee Trevino continues with another story. Arnie gets up there and, and, and he's going around and, and I've already got this figured out. I've already said, you know, this is his last round. My wheels are turning and I said, I'm going to get his ball. I'm gonna have him sign his ball, and I'm gonna have his last competitive golf ball. So he's hitting so many in the lake because he's taking chances. I mean, he's just ripping everything, and he keeps losing balls. And I'm, I'm, I'm worried like hell that he's gonna, he's not, he's gonna run out of ball. <laughs> he's gonna end up signing one of mine. <laughs> Man, this is gonna be awful. So he's, he keeps hitting them in the water and everything. We get on 17. Still 500. He's still 500. People are going bad. And so he, he gets on 17, and just for some reason, for some reason, this, this group's putting on the green up there, and he says, Four! He said, I always wanted to do that. 
But anyway, he finishes. And, and I'm just I'm just dying. I'm hoping. I'm looking for balls in the water. Every time he hits one, I'm looking fishing for them. I'm saying he's gotta have that ball with a little umbrella on it. You know, he had all the golf balls have that little umbrella. And sure enough he had one. So on my half he got the dog. I got the ball. We didn't think about taking the shoes. You know, we didn't think about it. But he keeps all his shoes. And Trevino talked about how Palmer never threw anything away. They were doing that. A deal on him about all his stuff that he's had, all the equipment and everything. He's, yeah, he's never thrown away anything. You know, he still has all the balls he plays with. You know, Sneed kept them all, but he sold them. You know, uh, Arnie just keeps them. He's got the gloves. Every pair of shoes he ever owned, he still has. Every club. He's got a wall like that with all persimmon drivers in the wall like that, he, that he'd had over all the years. But he keeps the tractors, you know, the Toro tractor and everything. Yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a beautiful, you know, they could do a program on hoarding, you know what I mean? That's, 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 but this is not a match, this is, this is really classy, yeah. And you could just tell the love and the friendship and the collegiality and the details. He knew a lot of details about this man's life and listen to the laughter in the crowd. Greg Norman, the great champion, calls into a talk show and remembers his friend Arnold Palmer. I've known him for uh, 35 years, plus years, and uh, I knew him on the golf course, I knew him off the golf course, I knew him in a locker room, uh, I knew him in such social settings, and uh, where you've got to know the individual, and quite honestly, Stuart, um, there's two people that have, well, actually three, but two in the sporting world that have actually impacted my life dramatically, and that would be Muhammad Ali and Arnold Palmer. Both of them had magnetism and charisma oozing out of their skin. Um, and he was a man of the people, for the people. Wow, imagine being in that company. Two guys, one of them is Muhammad Ali, the other is Arnold Palmer. Here's Greg Norman on how Palmer brought money to the game. He brought money to the game. He, you know, every player today owes a debt of thank, uh, thank you to Arnold Palmer for what he's done. These guys, Roy McIlroy won $11.5 million yesterday. Uh, Roy McIlroy could never have won $11.5 million if it wasn't for Arnold Palmer and what he did bringing the audience uh, to the game of golf through the TV screen. And here's Norman giving advice to younger players. Every young player today should go back and watch old footage of Arnold Palmer, old footage where Arnold was walking down the fairways. There were no gallery roads back then. Uh, you actually walked down there, and people were touching you, feeling you, smelling you, talking to you, <laughs> wanting to be involved with you. And Arnold embraced every single one of them. And today, you know, a lot of players are very stoic. I get it from security concerns and all that stuff, why, you know, you have security everywhere and people roped off everywhere. I get it. But quite honestly, Arnold was the one that brought people to him. They brought people to the game of golf. And we should all, all sit back and take a week of looking all, at all the old footage of Arnold Palmer and how he brought people to the game of golf. And this could apply to your business. This could apply to your church and to your family. And that's just his openness, his willingness to reveal himself to others, share with others, and just love on other people and total strangers. Here's the legendary sportscaster, Jim Nance. And my goodness, he was just tearing up the whole day. Jim was just struggling. I've never, ever seen Jim Nance struggle. He does Super Bowls. There's nothing Jim doesn't do. And here's Jim with Gary Player. Go out and watch Arnold Palmer for a day. Walk around 18 holes. Watch how many hands he shakes. How many people he makes eye contact with. Look at the patience he had with people with autographs. I mean, people just swarming on him. 
I mean, he's been so wonderful for the game. And here's Bill Murray. And you know him as an actor, but my goodness, if Bill Murray could do or be anything, it would be a professional golfer. And if he could be one person, there's no doubt he'd want to be Arnold Palmer. Let's take a listen to Bill Murray, who is on For the Win, our friends over at USA Today. Well, I mean, I I remember playing golf with him. He was grinding because he was getting ready for a senior uh, open. And so he was very focused on playing. And then when it was ended, he signed autographs for about almost three full hours straight. I never saw anything like it. I mean, he was sitting down, and they kept giving him, like, short glasses of Rolling Rock, but he signed for, like, two hours and 45 minutes straight. I never saw anything like it. It's amazing. I just want to stand there. You know, we'll be doing an hour on Bruce Springsteen soon. His, His memoir, Born to Run, is something almost anyone should read, even if you're not a music fan. But for anybody who'd ever had the opportunity to see Bruce in a concert, it was really the same thing. The first guy to go out into the audience, to throw himself into the audience... And the first guy to just say, as long as the audience is out there, I'm going to keep playing. And still to this day in his mid-60s, playing four-hour concerts. Because his feeling is, look, folks have driven a long way to see me. This may be the only time they've ever seen me, or ever will. They've put down their hard money, hard-earned money on the line, and I'm going to give them back more than I possibly can. As John Stewart once said about him, he leaves no gas in the tank. And Arnold Palmer left no gas in the tank. When we come back, we'll hear from Dan Patrick. We'll hear Arnold Palmer talk about his father, his roots, and so much more, including how Arnold Palmer professionalized and commercialized professional sports. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Arnold Palmer celebrated for the hour. To our four-time Masters champion, Mr. Arnold Palmer. This is Our American Stories. We're celebrating the life of Arnold Palmer. That was the kickoff to the 2016 Masters. And what a better way to do it than to introduce to the public again, and always, the man who won four green jackets. Four. Now let's pick up with more celebrations. We just heard from Bill Murray. There was one more we wanted to play before we dig into the life of Arnold Palmer. But my goodness, what better way to recall a life than to hear the voices of so many different people from so many different walks of life. Here's the broadcaster, Dan Patrick, talking about the impact Palmer had on him. I still go back to one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite moments in doing this was at the Fred Meyer Challenge. Peter Jacobson, he hosted this in Portland. And he'd have all the golf pros there raising money for charity. And I brought the radio show up there with Rob Dibble when I was at the mothership. And we're on the 18th. And then I thought, Arnold and Jack 
and Peter Jacobson were playing the 18th. And, and I thought I would bring a microphone out there while on the show live and follow them off to the side. So Peter Jacobson looks at me on the side of the fairway, and he's, he motions for me to come here, come here. And I don't even know what he's talking about. They're playing. And I, I walk out on the course, and Jake goes, isn't this great? I said, yeah, like what am I doing out here? And he said, walk in with us, walk in with us. So I'm behind Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Peter Jacobson, going into the 18th. And to walk up and hear that swell, hear that applause, they hear it all the time. But to be able to see it from their perspective, still one of the great moments I ever had. And Arnie was so generous. I remember that handshake of his. It hurt. It was a big hand. He had these big forearms. But he was, he was James Bond before James Bond. He was dashing. He made golf cool. It was just fun to be around that. He hadn't played in 43 years the last time he was on tour. PJ Tour, 43 years. And he was still one of the top earners. He had this name, this name that rose above his sport. He was had his own soft drink. I mean, he was famous in you know non-golf circles. That's when you know you've made it. But Arnold Palmer had his own plane. I mean, everything about him. You know, he wore a he wore a cardigan and looked great. There was just something about Arnold. You know, he just had a heater in his mouth and his sleeves rolled up and just ready to go. Whatever it was, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. A little bit about his life. Born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, a working class steel mill town, the son of Doris and Milford Jerome Deacon Palmer. He learned golf from his father who had suffered from polio at a young age and was head professional and greenskeeper at Latrobe County Country Club, allowing young Arnold to accompany his father as he maintained the course. Let's hear Arnold talk about his father and how his dad was his biggest influence, describing him as, well, tough, but honest. He was a tough, hard-working golf pro. And he learned both ends of the business the hard way, by experience and by personal uh, work and, and, and fun. And, uh, and he was tough. He never, he never let up. He stayed tough uh, all his life. And as a matter of fact, I think about it... Uh, he died a tough guy. He played 27 holes of golf the day he passed, and he was tough. He was honest, and uh, he was probably as honest uh, as I've ever seen anyone. He, he said it the way it was. He did it the way it was. Uh, he, he helped everybody he could. Uh, he contributed. Uh, probably the toughest guy that he dealt with was his son. Palmer goes on to talk about not having much money in his early life growing up and the sacrifices his dad made. In my family, my father and our, and our family uh, had no money most of our early lives. We, we would come out and hunt rabbits and pheasants and uh, and take them home and my mother would soak them in salt water overnight and and we'd eat them the next day 
and that was great stuff. Uh, but that was part of all of the education. Uh, and, and my father, when he bought uh, groceries, if he didn't have enough money to pay for it, I, I remember him scraping up enough money to go pay the bill, and, and he did. And he, he, he sacrificed the things that he liked to pay the bills for groceries that we ate. And that was his life. That was the way he lived in the early days. And, and of course, he told me how he appreciated uh, the fact that he was lucky enough to be a golf pro and to uh, be able to make a living doing what he was doing. And here's Arnold talking about his dad's first compliment. The first compliment Arnold ever gets from him, and it was after winning the National Amateur Championship. Nice going, boy. That's all he said. But that, in a way, wasn't that the first time he complimented you? My father was very tough. He was never one for throwing out rewards or uh, congratulations. And, and, and when he said, nice going, boy, I knew what it meant. And I felt it, and I was grateful. I called it the turning point, and uh, it was the turning point in the way it it gave me uh, the confidence that I needed to go ahead, turn pro, and get on the tour and play. And of course, with the contract that I had with Wilson, which goes back a few years, uh, it was pretty restricted because uh, I wasn't getting a lot of money. I was Caring enough to survive. And we're going to talk about that restrictive relationship with Wilson and the nature of the business of golf and the business of sports in just a minute as we go to the last part of our celebration. What you're about to hear about Arnold Palmer, my goodness, I had no idea myself. But that victory was the turning point in his life, winning the U.S. Amateur in Detroit in 1954. After that match, Palmer stopped the job he had at the time of selling paint and then continued to play in tournaments. There, in a weight memorial tournament in Shawnee on Delaware, Pennsylvania, he met his future wife, Winnie Walzer, and they would remain married for 45 years until her death in 1999. And Arnold remarried again in 2005, and his kids were so happy. And so were friends. And one just said this in a golf magazine about dad. I think the companionship that dad has now found with his new wife, Kit, is just what he needed. I think he needed someone that enjoys the things he enjoys. I think that everybody embraced her in a way that I don't think, well, I don't think she ever felt there was a looming presence of my mom but I think it's nice to see my dad finally again with someone he loves. And it took him six years to find new love. And I think, again, one woman, man, simple life, simple principles. And by the way, the way he talked about his dad, it, it almost word for word sounds like Brett Favre and the way he talked about his dad. Not abulence, not a, a kind word every minute, but when he finally did say, good job, son, or that a boy, 
My goodness, those words meant something. These fathers were living in examples of how to be good dads. They may not have spoken the words a lot, but they were there. Their presence was felt. Their love felt. Arnold Palmer, his life. When we come back, the business life of Arnold Palmer. This is a heck of a story. This is Our American Stories, our final segment, an hour-long celebration of the life of Arnold Palmer. And now this is the business life, because he changed sports as we know it. For every athlete that plays today, they have Arnold Palmer to thank for the story you're about to hear. Let's get the 30,000 overview from Dominic Chu, who filed this report for CNBC. I look back on Arnold Palmer's legacy off the golf course. Perhaps no other man in the history of golf did more to bring the game to the masses than Arnold Palmer. And he did so with the style and flair that helped set the stage for golf as we know it today. But it's off the golf course where Palmer parlayed his prowess on the links into a business empire. His business and endorsement deals have made him one of the richest sports figures in history. He's endorsed dozens of brands, everything from Cadillac to Hertz to Rolex to Pennzoil. Same Pennzoil. New package. According to Forbes, his net worth is estimated to be around $875 million, and that lands him at third among the world's highest paid athletes. Palmer's business empire has a variety of different operations. Among them, a golf course design company that has had a hand in the creation of over 300 golf courses all across the world. He had an ownership interest in famed golf resort Pebble Beach. He teamed up with a lawyer named Mark McCormick, and that relationship was a cornerstone to what would eventually become sports agency giant International Management Group, or IMG. He even licensed his name to one of his favorite drinks, a mixture of lemonade and iced tea. The Arizona Beverage Company produces over 400 million cans of Arnold Palmer's each year. And it's fitting that television propelled him to stardom in his early years, for in 1995, he helped start the Golf Channel, which at the time was the first ever single sport cable network. This week, the golfing world converges on Chaska, Minnesota for the USA versus Europe Ryder Cup competition. It's held every two years. Remembering Arnold Palmer's life and contributions to the game is expected to be a part of the celebration. But off the course, Palmer will be remembered as one of the kings of sports marketing, laying the groundwork for other athletes to follow in the legacy that he worked so hard to create. For Nightly Business Report, I'm Dominic Chu at the New York Stock Exchange. And Matt Fullerman wrote a terrific piece on what Arnold Palmer meant to the modernization and commercialization of sports. And when it was time to renew his contract with Wilson, and it was at the time just almost a, a, a slave labor contract, they just barely paid anybody anything. Palmer and Wilson spent a year in negotiations, eventually drafting a long-term deal, but Palmer knew that something was missing. Palmer is a, is a pretty conservative guy, and he wants to get the deal done. But he also wants this one other thing, which is a life insurance policy, and a life insurance policy that would you know, protect his two young daughters and his wife in case anything happened to him. He's driving around to tournaments in, you know, in, in the middle of the night 
uh, flying in rickety planes all over the country and really all, pretty soon thereafter all over the world. You know, this is not the, the, the safest thing. And, you know, everybody wants a life insurance policy to protect their families. And it would have cost Wilson $880 a year. And they would have been taking money that would have been gone to him as income anyway, and just before it went to him as income, buying a, you know, a tax-deferred life insurance policy. And everyone says okay, except for James Cooney, who was the CEO of Wilson at the time. And, you know, he just did not have any respect for athletes and, and golfers, and there was just no way he could think of giving a life insurance policy uh, for even at the low cost of $880 a year to a golfer. And that became Arnold Palmer's line in the sand. It was a hard line. Palmer left Wilson as soon as his contract allowed and started his own business. There were so many things that could have gone wrong. So why did Palmer take such a chance? He risked it all, and he did it because he realized that if he didn't do it, golfers and athletes were just never going to be respected. If, he, if the best golfer in the world, the most charismatic athlete on the planet at that point, arguably wasn't going to get a fair deal, then no one was going to get a fair deal. And that's why he that's why he said enough is enough. And it turned out all right because uh, none of those terrible things happened. Um, he launched the Arnold Palmer Golf Company. So within about three years of him turning down the deal with Wilson, he went from making roughly $10,000 a year off the sale of equipment and golf balls and things like that that had his name on it to making roughly $500,000 a year for that. And that was the launch of an empire. And by the way, for a little bit of levity, we heard about that drink. Here's Arnold Palmer telling the story of how the drink came to be named after him. Well, I will tell you, it started right here, uh, about 100 yards from where we are. I came home one day and uh, my wife made a lot of iced tea for lunch. And I said, hey, babe, I've got an idea. I said, you make the iced tea, make a big pitcher, and we'll just put a little lemonade in it and see how that works. So we, we mixed it up and I got the solution about where I wanted it. And I put the lemonade in it and I had it for lunch after working on the golf course. And I thought, boy. This is great, babe. I'm going to take it when I play golf. I'm going to take a thermos of iced tea and lemonade. I was building a golf course in uh, Palm Springs, and it was a very hot summer day. It was about 115 degrees, and we had gone in for lunch. And I uh, said to the waitress, could you do me a favor? And she said, sure, what is it? I said, I want an iced tea, but I want about a... Oh, a third or a quarter of it in lemonade. All of a sudden, the waitress went over to another table, and the lady at the table said, I want an Arnold Palmer. Well, all of us turned our head. We thought, what is she talking about? And she said, I want what he ordered. And it was, it was me, and, it, and that was the, and she called it an Arnold Palmer. Well, from that day on, it spread like wildfire. I was embarrassed to 
ask for an Arnold Palmer. I always say, can I have a, a, an iced tea and, and put about a third of it in lemonade? And they said, oh, you want an Arnold Palmer. <laughs> I just finally said, well, I won't fight the battle anymore. I'll just ask for an Arnold Palmer. I think maybe they won't know who I am. <laughs> and always self-deprecating. You know, you've heard of a lot of people this hour from Bill Murray, and you're going to hear from Jim Nance in a bit and Dan Patrick. But the best story of all was by Bob Green. And we tried to reach him, but Bob's just hard to reach. So I'm going to do a reading of his column because, well, Bob's such a good writer. And here's his story. And I think this illustrates why Palmer was so loved. Here's Arnold Palmer, who is everything, and here's a kid with a folded-up sheaf of copy paper and a ballpoint pen, who is nothing, and in a split second... Palmer has to make a decision. The decision, whichever way it goes, won't affect Palmer's life at all, but it has the potential to make the kid giddy with delight or to make him feel like an embarrassed idiot. This is the summer of 1967. Palmer has flown to central Ohio to play in a one-day pro-am. At 37 years old, he is one of the most adored and respected figures in American sports. The kid is me. I've caged a summer job helping out the lower circulation daily in a two-paper town. I'm working nights, so I don't have to be in the office until mid-afternoon. So I go to the golf course by myself in the morning. There are many golfers playing in the Pro-Am, a lot of them local duffers. But the crowds are following Arnie. It's as if the Beatles are performing on a hill and on a bill with a bunch of garage bands. There are ropes holding back the throngs, the vaunted Arnie's army. From one tee, Palmer comes into view, hitching up those trousers like no one else could. He's striding swiftly toward where his ball has landed. And here's the idiot part. I duck under the ropes and walk right up to him. You're not supposed to do such a thing. You're not supposed to go under the ropes. I didn't know. Maybe I did. I start to ask Palmer a question. Those pieces of copy paper in my hand triple folded like I'd seen the real reporters do. And the marshals are approaching. This is not going to be good. If I'm tossed out or carried out, it will be in front of all of those people. It will be a pretty comical, humiliating scene. And my Uncle Harmon, my mother's brother, is one of those people in the gallery who will witness it. I ask Palmer the question. He gives me a look. Who the heck are you? I work at the local paper, I tell him. I don't mention just how low-level and transitory my job is or that no one has assigned me to be at the tournament. And here's the moment. Here's where Palmer either will motion for the marshals or give me the heave-ho, or he won't. He kind of laughs at the absurdity of this. Who is dumb enough at a professional golf event to duck under the ropes and approach a player? And not just any player, the most revered player in the game. Palmer patiently answers the question. He generously gestures to keep me walking with him. He gives the marshals a little signal. Don't worry about it. This will be fine. Thus, for that one magical day, a day that when it started, I had no reason to believe would be anything other than unexceptional. I walked the entire golf course in the company of Arnold Palmer. Wow. And so we close out with one of the great sports broadcasters of all time. There's nobody like Jim Nance. He's done it all. Super Bowls, the biggest personalities in sports history. And you could tell throughout the day as he was commenting that this was personal, the passing of Arnold Palmer. And so 
we close out the hour with Jim Nance. You know, his golf career has been over for a long time. And it'll always live on as a legendary career. But Arnold Palmer, the man, and how you treat people, that will live forever. And this is Our American Stories. And we tell every kind of story. Good ones, bad ones, sad ones, happy ones. Stories about people. Stories about towns. We did a, we did a story on the, uh, the, the city of Denver and how it came to be. The great train robbery, an event. And sometimes an ad tells a story. And some guy was trying to sell his Dodge Viper on Craigslist and posted a hilarious sales pitch that warns the reader of an impending doom should they choose to purchase, said Viper. Here's that ad read by our in-house talking computer, Ed. Okay. Full disclosure. I almost killed myself in it. It is very powerful. Extremely, extremely fast. I've driven Ferraris that don't feel as crazy as this thing. I am frankly afraid of it now. That's right. It's in my garage and I'm afraid to drive it because it's like a crazy steroid bull that wants to kill me. I've done 130 miles per hour on a Ducati while laughing into the face of death. The Viper is a completely different bowl of crack. The engine sounds like 40 pit bulls eating kittens while lifting weights. I cannot truly explain its power. It has whiplash acceleration in third gear at 50 miles per hour. That sentence doesn't even make sense. But it's true. That's why I'm telling you. I will not have your soul on my conscience. You need to know what you are getting into. What insane level of crazy you are buying. Can you resist the urge to mash down the accelerator? Can you? Because it's like owning your own demon. A demon that wants to kill you. We all know one person that for the right amount of money would kill you. But since no one is pain, they smile in your face and go about their day. It's like that except the viper doesn't bother to ever pretend it doesn't want to kill you. And it will do it for free. Some brilliant engineer designed a beautiful sexy bulging body, fantastic suspension, great handling, aerodynamics, and all-American style. While he was out on his lunch break, some demented maniac dropped 100 times more engine power than necessary into it and sent it out the door. It's mentally unbalanced. Look. If you are the type of person that can be talked into having one more drink at midnight when you have a very important presentation or interview early the next morning, then the Viper is not for you. The whole car is constantly whispering sweet lies to you. You got this. Open me up and ride free. You got this. Are you a wussy? Just do it. Do it. You got this. Do not do it. You don't got it. You are a wussy. You will sit on the curb and settle your heart after it tries to kill you the first time. You will get back inside and it will immediately get back to the business of trying to get you to let it murder you. You got this. 
This time you know. That last time was just a fluke. You ain't no wussy, repeat after me. You don't got this. But for $30,000 you can look the devil in the eye and take this ride. You were warned. <laughs> well, thank you, Jesse. And thank you, Ed. And by the way, I love that computer read, Jesse. Saves us. We're going to automation here Absolutely. at Our American Stories. And from the sublime to the serious, our field correspondent, John Woods, serves in the Army National Guard. And he bumped across a troubling story from Major Paul Stubbs that was in the Marine Corps Times. And that's what we go from, Craigslist to the Marine Corps Times. And it was titled, quote, Blowing off orders has become a troubling norm. And Major Stubbs graciously recorded it for us. And you're about to hear just how troubled he feels about it. You can actually hear the despondency in his voice. Here he is. I think I'll grow a beard. It is increasingly apparent that more and more Marine Corps are just set aside because we're so busy answering higher-ups mail and adding new requirements and systems to track and manage training and equipment. Not out of belligerence, just as a matter of course. It's non-malicious, selective disobedience. Don't believe me? Then why do we take weeks or months preparing for readiness inspections? If we'd been executing the orders, we would all just be in compliance with standards as a matter of course. Any day of the week would be a good day for an inspection. But we don't comply until it becomes an absolute necessity. Operations shut down and Marines are pulled to help the sections get back in compliance, like Badlands Corporals who live like pigs until Thursday afternoon inspections. Is that the new standard? As Marines, we keep our eye on the ball. Hire's intent. We get the items briefed at the commanding officer's weekly meeting done first. Units are 100% sexual assault, prevention, and readiness trained, but our vehicle record jackets haven't been updated in months and our weapons are dirty. But no one's asking about the vehicles or the weapons just now. And if our unit numbers are in red and the other units are in green, we look bad in front of the boss. The direction we're heading leaves us continually playing catch-up and clean-up as the requirements that actually get noticed change. This engenders a weapons turn-in mentality. We're busy, so only clean where they will look. The rest can rust. We have other things to do. I've had senior officers brush aside requirements because the unit was too busy. When they're confronted with the actual order to which that requirement pertained, they responded, but there's no demand signal to spend time on this. Really? as if a compressed schedule translated into automatic exception. But commanders set priorities, and if they add rocks to a pack and never take any out, well-meaning career professionals have to decide for them which orders they will ignore. The answer is the ones that aren't enforced. Why is there never a discussion about getting rid of requirements, just adding new ones? For example, why does a lieutenant colonel who has never used tobacco have to take the online tobacco cessation class every year? Is that something that could perhaps be only required for tobacco users? Does a Marine married for 20 years with a crop of kids really need the class on preventing sexually transmitted diseases? Is he or she the target audience for this information? We preach top-down planning and bottom-up refinement, but we seem to skip that second part. We've chosen to stay on top of the things our higher commands put on their radar. The rest is set aside as something we pay attention to once every couple of years, when it again becomes important to leadership command inspection scorecards. So, I think I'll grow a beard and see how long it takes someone to tell me I'm out of regulation. Then, if they're not of higher rank than me or able to reach into my chain of command, I will apply what seems to be our paradigm of ignoring it until there are actual consequences. 
Or maybe I should just keep shaving every day and we should do a sanity check on the cost and hours of compliance and match that up against what we want the unit to do for the actual primary mission. But we can't do both, and we aren't. And that's again from John Woods. And again, we love bringing you every kind of story, and we want to hear the real voices of the men and women who serve this country and the bureaucratic bureaucratic rules and norms they have to deal with and the political the political ramifications of some of this stuff that gets thrown at them. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by Hillsdale College. And on this day in history, an American legend was born... A legend whose brand you most definitely know and use. But you don't know him until now. These guys came to the door, they knocked on the door. My father didn't look through the people to see who it was. And they pushed the door open, and so he came running out. And I still remember this picture. My father was on his knees, and this man had a gun to his head, you know, telling him that, you know, if he doesn't give him the money, he's going to kill him. So, you know, they took my mother and my brother and I uh, and tied us up and um, we were like really scared. I mean, this guy had a real gun and he was, these, these guys were really gonna you know, hurt us. And my mother, <laughs> my mother's saying, you know, what you're doing here really isn't right. She said, you know, you really have to find another way to, to, you know, to lead, lead a productive life. So this is not a good thing, holding up people. And, you know, and she gave him this whole lecture and everything. But to her, it was the principal thing. It wasn't right. She was going to express herself. She was going to tell this guy that it was the wrong thing that he was doing. And he had to think about something else to do for the rest of his life. This was not a good vocation he had picked out. And his mother would not be proud of him. Thankfully, the speaker's mother was proud of him. And so was his father. But he wasn't always there to express it. I lost my father when I was only 15. He was um, 44 at the time. Probably had more of an effect on me than I realized as a young man. The, the fact that he lost his father at an early age, it could have been a big minus, but it, it didn't work out that way. I made this decision that uh, if I didn't step in and try to earn a decent livelihood, the boys could never go to college. The young boy later said, so mother became the breadwinner, trying to, as she put it, be a mother and a father to two sons. Of course, there is no way that a mother can be a father to boys anyway. How much his death affected her Nobody will ever really know for sure, but I think it was probably greater than any of us ever suspected, not only because she had to go into his business and run it with no experience, but because it was really a small business then. If she had tried to sell it right after my father died, it wouldn't have been worth very much. His father's tireless labor launching their mail-order pharmaceutical company and his mother's labor building it up and leading the family alone were profound examples of perseverance for the young man. Stuttering was one of the things that made me feel very different. In college, uh, the difference was even, even more of an issue for me. When it was my turn to answer a question, 
classmates would roll their eyes. Oh boy, here we go again. And um, what the weird part of it was is that when I had the answer and I was not called on, I would still raise my hand to give the answer. It's a little self-punishment, maybe it was defiance, maybe it was refusing to be throttled by a disorder. I think my father's death affected me in a lot of ways, he reflected later. Maybe at some level, deep down inside, I have always had a sense of urgency about getting things done and accomplishing things and moving on with things. Michelangelo sums this up well. He says, the greater danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it's too low and we reach it. And his father's early death might also be why he places this special focus with his life. Don't focus on your resume, focus on your eulogy. As you build your career and your life, if you think about when you're gone, what, what is it you would want people to say about you that when you're not here? And if you live that way throughout your life, in your business, career, and personally, you're going to make a lot of good choices. Arthur Blank, co-founder of The Home Depot. We came from a very middle-class family, lived in a single-bedroom apartment. I didn't live in a home until I was 30, 31 years old. And remember, that home cost $31,000. And I remember telling my wife at that time is that I'll keep current the payments, but we'll never own the home. We'll never actually pay the debt off completely. So uh, times have changed, but, um, but I, but. <laughs> Arthur Blank, the inside guy at the Home Depot. Arthur was the money guy. Who keeps the train running on the tracks, along with the outside guy. The cheerleader and the inspiration. Who sells their vision to the world. Without the outside guy, little may be sold, and without the inside guy, there may be little to sell. Here's the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, Pat Williams. Without Roy, uh, we probably wouldn't know much about Walt Disney today. It's kind of like Hewlett and Packard, right? You know, a, a business team. It's uh, probably like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. It's like Rich DeVos and Jay Van Andel with Amway. Uh, it's like Frank Wells and Michael Eisner later at Disney. Those remarkable two-man teams that made things happen. The Home Depot had two outside guys. How many shot the other guy? <laughs> okay. Uh, those of you who don't shop the Home Depot but shop the, the other guy, and those of you who occasionally go there, I have a curse, and that curse is, may your toilet run forever. With enough personality. Elliot is a gift that never stops giving, as far as I'm concerned. And I can't say enough evil things about him. For 200. Let me give you the second message of unpopularity, because I have you here, and you can't go. If you go, if you go, it'll be very rude. If you get up and walk, I will make some asinine statement about it. And so by the time you get to the door, you'll be sorry you ever stood up. Ken Langone. I do give up names because my passion is so strong for those I like or I dislike 
that I, that I would miss a great chance not to take a shot. And Bernie Marcus. Take a hammer, a stupid hammer. You know how many times a Home Depot has been sued because people dropped the hammer on their toes? You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. Idiot drops a thing on his toe and he sues us for it. My God. Together they all built one of the greatest companies ever. You know, when you look for a partnership, what you try to do is have two people that are opposites that give you a whole picture. And uh, Arthur is very meticulous. He's very fundamental in his thinking. He dots every I and crosses every T. If you were to take Arthur and say, who's the opposite of Arthur, it would have to be me. I think that Bernie and I, you know, um, for probably 35 years, um, we shared the same commode. Uh, and, uh, you know, that sounds kind of funny, but uh, saying it, but, you know, that really, we, we shared, we shared our lives. I mean, it was not only, uh, it was not only the great success we, uh, we went through uh, the, 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 the success we had at Handy Dan. The firing of, at Handy Dan in, in, in 78, uh, starting the company in 78, the Home Depot in 78 and 79, but we also went through all of the traumas in our own, our own lives, the birth of our children, we went through some divorces, we went through you know, some marriages, we went through all of our life cycle events, uh, we went through together. And I think that, um, you know, when I, when I say that I love Bernie as, uh, as my partner, I love him more as my brother. The Home Depot wouldn't be the business it is today if it weren't for their love for each other. And when we come back, more about Home Depot co-founder Arthur Blank. In his book with Bernie Marcus, called Built from Scratch, Arthur Blank wrote, quote, we're the oddest couple that has ever come down the pike. Forget Mutt and Jeff or Oscar and Felix. Our physical and emotional differences are so obvious to everybody who knows us that it is a miracle that we survived 20 years together because we are such polar opposites. Personalities created the Home Depot. If it had been conceived of by any of a thousand other people, they could not have created what we did. Personality was our X factor, especially in the early days. Each of us was a strong-willed personality. Bernie Marcus and Ken Langone were the extroverted giant slayers. I was the reserved, less bombastic businessman who counterbalanced the excesses of the other two. We each possess a different combustible element that won't ignite without the others. More about the life of Arthur Blank after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we're fortunate, again, to be joined by Pastor Corey Brooks, the founder of Project Hood, helping others obtain destiny 
and the pastor of New Beginnings Church in Chicago's South Side. His church is on a street named after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but that street is now equally associated with drugs, violence, and prostitution, as with the great Dr. King's vision. The last time we talked with Corey about this south side of Chicago neighborhood and his efforts to bring it a new beginning, and so you'll be surprised that today we'll be talking about Chicago's north side with Corey. A north side it is that is that many times more safe and prosperous. And Corey, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, having me on your show again. Oh, you bet. And okay. Corey, why are you a south sider bringing attention to something that happened in the north side and the north side high school of New Trier, one of the nation's top public schools where people like Donald Rumsfeld and Rahm Emanuel graduated and sadly, sadly was, the, was the inspiration of the movie Mean Girls. Right. Well, one of the reasons why uh, I started going up north is that uh, I was invited by some parents because they were very concerned about a seminar day that they were having for uh, the kids of Nutria High School. And that seminar day, they were saying that um, they were going to have these presenters and that all of these presenters that they were having uh, were, uh, you know, far left or liberal thinking. And a lot of the parents, they were not opposed to the seminar day, but what they were opposed to is that uh, having that one perspective, that one way of thinking. And so they invited me up to, to, to present the options, the alternatives, uh, to let people know that African Americans don't all think one way. And since uh, the beginning of uh, time in America that we've been here, we've always had people who have thought differently. And so that's what I was trying to communicate up north and, and to give them that perspective. And talk about some of the things that were being taught uh, over there that day, and what what bugged some parents and you about the nature of, of that teaching? Well, it was a, a civil rights discussion based upon race, and that alone um, is, is troubling because we're living in a day and a time where race is not what I believe is ought to be put in the forefront. Uh, I believe that what we're dealing with is economic impoverishment. We're dealing with uh, no longer are we... Um, in a position where we got to keep constantly airing our grievances to the public in order to make people feel guilty and to make them feel bad about us being black and them being white. However, we're in a day and a time where there are people who, whether they live in the Appalachians or whether they're in West Virginia or whether they're in inner cities of America, that are all experiencing uh, being impoverished. And the same traits, regardless uh, of where you are, uh, are seem to be perpetuated. Um, crime, uh, against one another, um, bad schools, uh, inadequate uh, opportunities. Those are the things that, that we wanted to see talked about, not just black, white, race issues across the board and making people feel as if uh, that's the only thing that blacks are concerned about when it comes to civil rights. You know, it's interesting, Pastor. We're going through the same thing right here in our little hometown. It's a, it's a, it's a, racially, uh, it's a racially integrated town. There is some wealth. There is some poverty. Um, but the poor, the poor folks in the town who are disadvantaged are, are plenty of white kids, plenty of black kids, and some very well-to-do African-American families and some well-to-do white families. I'm an Arab-American. I don't know where I fit in. Um, and, and yet all that's coming into the schools through uh, an institute here at the college is it's all about wealth redistribution as if poverty and race, as if poverty isn't something my wife, who grew up in a trailer to a single mom, 
Well, I right. grew up Arab. She was white. She's white. I grew up with poor Arab immigrant parents and Italian parents, but I grew up with an intact family. And Pastor, if we know one thing in this country, that the thing that eliminates almost all poverty gaps is a mother and a father and then children. Why is nobody talking about this? Yeah, you know, I think um, the family the family dynamic is very important. And if you take away that aspect of American life, you are going to have some consistent problems. And one of the things that uh, we do see, and you're correct, uh, from impoverished families is that there is the absence of two-parent households. And so we definitely do understand that having a two-parent household adds to uh, the economy, adds to the economy of that family, and it adds to the perspective of that family. So you, you're definitely right that not only should we be talking about economic injustice, but at the same time we've had a major social issue uh, with single-parent households, especially in African-American context. You're talking about uh, 65% or almost 70% of African-American households are single-parent households, and that is a major problem that drives a lot of economic depravity that we see. You know, and a lot of people will say, well, folks folks are poor, so they can't get married, and yet marriage rates in this country, white and black families, were very high during the, they were very high during the Great Depression, because, well, single-parent families weren't normalized. It wasn't, and the government wasn't coming in and interfering with the social function and social norms, and so I actually believe, Pastor, that Poverty is caused by lack of marriage, and marriage isn't. The marriage rates aren't caused by poverty, and I think it's a discussion. Imagine this: imagine if every kid knew and was told every day that if you will get married and then have kids, you have a five percent chance of being of staying poor in this country, and your kids have a much greater chance of not going to prison, not being drug addicts, not being sexually abused. I just don't think we don't do enough and don't spend enough time. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, but even in the secular world, we just don't spend enough time evangelizing and, and, and talking and, and tending to that message. Yeah, and I, you're exactly right. You know, the Bible promotes family, and I think the, the lack of a family structure and, and families being promoted and families being uh, publicized and talked about as the strength of America is is, is, a, is a is a big weakness, and as a result, uh, we keep having uh, breakdown of family structures regardless of color, and as a result, uh, in those areas where you have the breakdown of family structures, you have all kinds of problems. And I think you're right; we do have to do a better job at promoting family and promoting marriage and promoting uh, the unity of family, because uh, that's definitely biblical, and it definitely would help society in so many ways. No doubt, and this affects every family. I mean, the, the white uh, teenage out of wedlock rate is starting to creep into the mid-30s, and the whole country is now at 40%. Uh, this is, when it hits 50%, Pastor, for all of us, every group, yeah. oh my goodness, I don't know how the government solves that problem, but let's go back to Nutrier High School. The reason I was bringing up family is because you rarely hear the left, especially the far left, and this is not a political show, but I think everyone in our audience knows what we're talking about. What are they talking about in this, in this discussion? Talk about the kinds of things they're talking about at this Nutrier High School. Because, by the way, folks, this is coming to a K-12 school district near you, this kind of material. Right. Well, if you could think of every leftist thought uh, as far as social uh, uh, solving social issues from a leftist point of view, those are the things that's being discussed. I don't think there's anything being left out. Uh, I think uh, what they're trying to do is 
promote an agenda uh, without saying it. Uh, but it's obvious from the people that they chose uh, to be speakers, uh, because whether you read their writings or hear their speeches, uh, they're all socially left, far left. And, and that's the type of information that they were trying to um, give to these young people. Uh, one of the things that they were saying at the board meeting is that they wanted these kids to grow up to be critical thinkers. And I find it very damaging that you want the kids to be critical thinkers, but you want to only give them one perspective. And it always amazes me on when the left says that you ought to be open-minded and you ought to have your heart open. But yet when it comes to being conservative and it comes to promoting conservative thoughts, uh, they become very closed-minded and closed heart all of a sudden. And that's the type of attitude and behaviors that uh, I witnessed personally at that new Trier uh, while at their board meeting. Well, hold on and hold on to those thoughts, too, Pastor. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of those specific examples. And we're going to talk about the rich tradition of, of what, a, what I would consider a more conservative mindset and thought inside the african-american community certainly it's inside my lebanese community there was a split and there was a lengthy debate inside our community about which way to go more government help or more personal empowerment and i can tell you who won in the lebanese community the personal empowerment side won when we come back more with pastor Corey brooks of new beginnings church in chicago's south side talking about of all things an upper crust upper class school district in the north side of Chicago. This is Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Pastor Corey Brooks of New Beginnings Church in Chicago's south side. And by the way, folks, we love to talk about all things in America and about all people in America. And we have a heart particularly for our rural areas in this country, particularly the poor white areas, the Appalachian areas. And we're going to be sending correspondents there. And we like to talk about what's happening in the heart of our nation's inner cities, because I think what's happening to both places is really the same now when we're finding that race is sort of indistinguishable now from the real problems, which is economic dislocation, poverty and family. And to, to join us again, Pastor Corey Brooks, thanks again for joining us, Pastor. Thank you, as you, always. You bet. And I wanted to talk about some of these uh, ideas. Uh, microaggressions, voices from literature was being taught at this school, Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, uh, Take a Knee, Colin Kaepernick's Activism and Symbols of America, and my favorite, White Privilege in College Admissions. Uh, just talk about some of these, and, and, and how do these help any of us understand what's going on as it relates to race and class in the United States. Right. So, again, even with those subjects, you have individuals who are focusing totally on race, and their goal is to continue to bring their our grievances before people so that, number one, they get paid from it, number two, they keep jobs doing it. And I think people need to know that there are people who make a living uh, promoting racial issues, racial problems all the time, and neglecting to trying to get us to come together as Americans and neglecting the fact that the real issue, I believe, is an economic issue. It's a poverty issue. And so those individuals are going to constantly keep uh, promoting their messaging, but we have to do a better job at making sure that we let people know, hey, listen, 
Everybody does not think like this, and we need to start uh, promoting our message and letting people hear our voice be loud and be spoken. So that's one of the reasons why I went out to Nutria, because I wanted them to know there is a different perspective. There is a different thought. There are people who think just like Booker T. Washington, and there are people in our culture who want that to be expressed, and so that's what I was trying to do. Talk about the difference. There was a great debate happening in the early 20th century in black America. And by the way, I, the same debate was occurring between Jews around the world. There were some Jews who thought that Russia was the way and that communism was the way. And there were some Jews that thought that capitalism was the way. And my goodness, we know how that ended out for the Jews who thought communism was the way. And in the early 20th century, we had Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois and they had a very different view of America and where it should head and what it should do about the black victims of racism, slavery, and segregation. Talk about that, that struggle and that dialogue. Well, that, that struggle right there is a great example. Um, the struggle between W.E.B. Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington the, the trying to um, both express their points of view as it relates to what African Americans, what the agenda should be for our people. One believed uh, that uh, in, in, in more government and more assistance, more help, more um, dependence. The other believed more in self-reliance uh, and then uh, entrepreneurship and businesses and focusing on um, money reinvested in the black community by black hands. And so that, that train of thought um, unfortunately, I believe, has not won out, and that's the reason why we're in the situation that we're in. Uh, we, we've created a culture where we have not been as self-reliant, and we have not um, built our communities up the way that we should, and we have not um, focused on making sure that our dollars uh, turn over in our community so that we can help ourselves. So what has happened is that uh, I believe that we've become more dependent on others outside to come in and save us, and that is just not happening. And that, to me, is the same uh, social liberal train of thought that wants us to believe that we have to wait on the government and that the government somehow can come in and save us and fix things for us and that we have to have them involved in our lives. And that therein lies the issue and the problem. I think that's so true, and it, and it becomes almost a mindset. I mean, in the end, poverty is a mindset, and I think this is how we know it. I mean, you're looking, Pastor, at first-generation Ethiopians, folks from Trinidad. When you look at the migrant Africans coming here, and they're coming here with a dollar in their pockets, a dollar in their pockets. And when you look at per capita income and how those folks are doing in this country, it's surreal. And by the way, you dare to bring that up in any discussion about race, and you just start getting called names. Hey, absolutely. And, and But it's a valid point that those individuals uh, basically have come here with little or nothing, and they have built up a, a train of thought that says, look, we must reinvest in ourselves. We must connect with one another. We must start businesses. We must not wait on others to come in and save us. And we must get involved in free markets, and we've got to get involved in the economy. And when that happens and those opportunities present themselves, then their culture becomes stronger and stronger. And so I applaud them for what they're doing. And now I just hope and pray uh, that we can have that same type of thing happening in the African-American context, because if we don't, 
We're going to continue to see failing schools. We're going to continue to see uh, environments where there's a high level of crime. We're going to continue to see the breakdown of family structures, and that's going to be very persistent across the country in major urban areas, and that's what we need to change. I'm going to read just a bit from a column you wrote uh, in the Chicago Tribune because, you know, you were, you were, your point was you would have loved to have seen different types of people there, and here's what you said. There are a great number of black Chicago businessmen who have built multi-million dollar businesses who advocate for development in blighted areas and are against mandates and government programs. None of these voices were represented on the seminar day lineup. And I have to just a brief story about me, Pastor. You know, I'm, I'm a Lebanese kid. I came here the only Arab, forget in the county, I was the only Arab kid I ever met in New Jersey. And I heard it all. And when I would come home, my parents would say, get a helmet. For every one person who doesn't like you because of who you are, there are 100 who don't care. You can either pay attention to those idiots or you can go on with the rest of your life. And they just were not going to let me be the victim. They had no sympathy for it. They had no tolerance for it. They always thought I was trying to make a mistake, make an excuse to not do my homework or not do something else. And they were just tough. And I've got to tell you, I ended up being friends with a lot of people who were calling me names. I ended up becoming best friends with them. They just had never met an Arab before. So I think this is the point. They're a racist. And no question there's racism in America. The question is, what's the proper response? Absolutely. And, and I think that was the great advice that could be given to you. You can either focus on those few individuals who act in ignorance, or you can focus on the individuals who are, uh, who don't, who are not looking at race every single day and that they want to make life better for everyone and give people opportunities. And so I'm, I, I believe that the solution is we have to do a better job at communicating that we want to help impoverished areas. We have to do a better job at communicating that everybody deserves an opportunity, regardless if they're black or white or whatever, uh, whether they live in the Appalachians or whether they live in the, uh, on the south side of Chicago. They need op- op- uh, options and opportunity, and we have to provide them uh, alternatives to live. And we just cannot, we cannot afford to continue to let people um, just give us this one-sided, lopsided way of thinking and, and believe that that's going to fix it because it's not. And we know the power of, of vouchers in schools and the ability of a student to move from school to school and choose their schools. And right. no, no middle-class parent in this country or wealthy parent doesn't not choose their schools. They all choose their schools. But I, I, I've been hearing more and more talk, Pastor, about the idea of housing vouchers, too. Because imagine this. If you got to take that HUD, that money that was spent for that that HUD house, and you got to go where you wanted with that, you could actually pick your school with that too. And I have a feeling there's going to be a lot more discussion about where and how government can incent people to make their own choices so they're no longer dependent on government. I think that's something a lot of Americans would rally around, giving people vouchers and choices. Right. You know, one of the things that people don't realize is that uh, Martin Luther King was, was really moving and had a lot of momentum until he started talking about poverty. And when he started talking about poverty and helping impoverished people, that whole movement, a lot of people turned on him, especially uh, leftist liberal individuals. And one of the things that you just mentioned, I believe, well, two of the things that you just mentioned, I believe would help impoverished people a lot, regardless of what color they are. Providing HUD certificates for people to live wherever they want to live who are instead of subject, subjecting them to housing areas and housing developments, but allowing them to take that help, that assistance, and move wherever, 
I think that is a, a, a great option. And I definitely believe in educational, um, uh, giving them the vouchers to take their child anywhere. Uh, it's, it's, it's horrible that impoverished people have to continue to have their children regulated to some of the worst schools because of where they live in these impoverished areas. But if we allow people to take their tax dollars, their monies, and have their child go to the school that would better them and that would help them, you would quickly see people, uh, a lot of people being moved out of poverty. Uh, but it's, it's, it's sad that, unfortunately, you have a lot of people who think very differently. And because of that, we've, we're in the situation that we're in. Well, we're going to be having uh, Alex, who's a Chicago boy, and next time he visits home, Pastor, we're going to go and visit. We'd like to follow some of the, a couple of young people who you, a couple of young people who are resisting the bad choices and trying to make the right choices. We'd love to follow their lives down the line for a year or so. And hopefully we can get that done. And thanks so much, as always, for joining us. All right. Thank you. I greatly appreciate it. And as always, thanks for having me on your show. You bet. This is Lee Habib, Pastor Corey Brooks of New Beginnings Church in Chicago South Side. And he was dealing with some rather interesting ideas being pushed and promoted in one of the more Tony Northside Chicago schools about race and class. Again, this is Our American Stories.